Welcome to the Family Room, sponsored by Versprite, where we offer hope, encouragement, and wisdom centered on biblical truth and Catholic teaching, because God's kingdom begins at home. Now welcome your hosts, Mari, John, and Craig, right here on AM 1160, The Quest, your Atlanta Catholic Radio. Welcome into the family room. This is Mari Cleveland, and I'm here with my co-host, Craig. Hey, Craig. Hello, hello. And John. Hey, John. Hey, Mari. So today we've got a, a we've got a pretty adult topic, and so right off the bat, I'm going to just say that if you do have little ears who are around, you might want to get them occupied in other areas. But today we're going to be talking about the topic of sexual predators. Tough topic, heavy topic. We're going to be talking with Anna Sonoda about her new book. It's called Duck, Duck, Groom. Understanding how a child becomes a target. And so you guys, as you think about this topic of, of sexual predators, what comes to mind for you? Just a lot of bad thoughts. But I think what I really like about uh, Anna's conversation is she articulates it without mincing words, but in a way she talks about she'll talk about a courtship. Yeah. And it was very easy for me to follow what could be a very difficult a scenario by how she laid it out. Mm. So you really understand the process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think she did yeah. a great job with the book also. Yeah, definitely. I mean, broad base, look at it. I think she calls us to stay awake, pay attention to what's going on, because whether it's a predator, you know, who's preying on our kids? It could be things going on in their schools, whatever else. And I think it was just a call to be courageous and wake up and get involved. Yeah, and she's got a unique website to get that book. The book is excellent. What is that, Mari? Yes, that website goes along with the title of her book, just like the child game Duck, Duck, Goose, but this one is Duck, Duck, Groom, G-R-O-O-M.com. So the website is Duck, Duck, Groom.com, and we'll also have that in their show notes. Awesome. So I'm looking forward to the way that Anna is going to share with us and our listeners ways that we can demystify this grooming process where we can have confidence and courage as parents to protect our families against sexual predators. John, would you please open us in prayer? I'd like to do that. Thanks. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are here as always first with thoughts and prayers of gratitude, but then also with petition that this morning uh, you be with us and, and just open our minds and our hearts to the message here. Father, we heard from your son, Jesus, that children were special. They were, he had such a desire and such a love for children and, 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 and the, the weaker people. And, and we just pray this morning that this time that we have with our guests, with Anna, that we get an understanding and we can be part of a kingdom that loves and respects and protects those children who are so precious to you and to your son. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Yes, so as you guys heard, we have got an amazing guest with us today. We are so thankful for her work in this area. We're thankful for her heart um, for parents and for children. And we have got Anna Sonoda with us today. She is a licensed clinical social worker. Um, More importantly for me, she's actually the mother of five. I have to put hats off to her. It's amazing. Mother of five. And she looks very beautiful here in the studio. She's all put together like you had a shower maybe even. 
Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> That's allowed for moms once a week at least. I know. I'm just impressed with any mom who looks so good when they have five young children. Um, she's also the author of a new book called Duck, Duck, Groom, Understanding How a Child Becomes a Target. And Anna also helps with Virtus training in the Archdiocese, and we are thankful for that. So welcome to the family room, Anna. Thank you very much for having me, Mari and John and Craig. <laughs> I appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to talk about such an important subject um, and one that is near and dear to, to my heart as a mom um, and as a parishioner, but also one that I know impacts many families and um, individuals who are listening. So thank you very much for the time to speak with me today. Great. I think, as you said, there's more people impacted by this than we really think mm -hmm. they are. So, But before we get into the actual topic... Uh, would you tell us a little more about yourself, your, your faith journey, but also, more importantly, what was it that prompted you to write this book? Well, that's a really good question, Craig. I try. I, um, <laughs> I was called to write this book. It was um, an intent that was strongly placed in my heart about three years ago. I converted to Catholicism from the Episcopalian faith about 10 years ago, and I never quite understood why I was being called to Catholicism, but I knew in my heart that it was the right time. And what I learned from my devotions and my Bible study is that you have to be open to the call that God gives you. Mm -hmm. And about three years ago, I was struck with a reverberating gong of a noise in my heart that said, you should tell people what you know about grooming and predation of children. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, 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 no. This is, I cannot do this job. I don't have a research lab. I don't work at a university. I don't have years and years of studies. And the voice kept saying, you should really write this <laughs> down because you have something important to share. And that message really was one of empowerment and one of optimism for families who had young kids. And what I noticed is that as soon as I said yes, you know, faith is that expectation and action behind it. So um, I was called to write it, and I was able to find um, excellent support with editors, and um, and now we have the finished product. And I couldn't be happier that I have this opportunity to talk with you all and empower people. And to clarify for our listeners. What do you do that gave you the knowledge to write this book? Oh, so I worked with convicted sex offenders for about four and a half years when I was going through my training for my master's in social work and in the years afterwards. And that experience stuck with me forever. And I didn't quite understand the value of that experience until I had children of my own mm -hmm. and started witnessing all the opportunities in which adults have access to my children and trying not to be t too scared or paranoid is probably the term you hear about a lot with yeah. parents and oh my gosh I can't trust anyone and I realized wait a second there are certain things that I do just because of that experience in the clinical setting and I learned some of the tactics and the techniques that are used in order to gain access and to have space with our children and so I really wanted to send that message out to parents great yeah. I think you shared a really important uh, point with us when we were talking. When you first started working with convicted sex offenders, you were very surprised. There was a revelation for you 
uh, when you entered the room and took a look around at what a room full of sex offenders looks like. Can you share that with us? Yeah, John, it's amazing how ordinary sex offenders are. It looks like I could be in the middle of the DMV or in an office park complex, or I could just be sitting in, you know, your average restaurant. There's nothing remarkable. It looks like anybody who maybe lives in your neighborhood or who you work with um, or who lives down the street. So at the risk of sounding paranoid, actually, no, cautionary. So when when someone thinks about a sex offender, they're not thinking about a gruff person, poorly kempt. It could be any of a number of situations, which as you think about it from a parent's perspective, very hard to pick out. Absolutely. And that, I think, is the the foundation of the stress. How do I protect my child when I know that it could be anyone? Mm -hmm. And my message is one of let's pay attention to behavior. Sex offenders could be everywhere. And they're probably not on some registry because most child abuse is not reported Mm -hmm. and most of it doesn't go through the court system. So if we know that, then we need to act as if we are protecting our children. It doesn't matter what environment we're in and it doesn't matter what title that person might have in our lives. We still need to trust but verify. And we need to be thinking through what are the signs I'm getting from their behavior, not from what they say, not from their intent, but what it, what it, can I see? And grooming, which is the courtship relationship that happens in all child sex abuse with the known and trusted adult is something that is observable and it is gradual and it is also intervenable because we can see it coming. Yeah. And I think that you just saying that already we're starting to hear the optimism in your message that there's something we can do about that. But a lot of uninformed parents and grandparents, we have a lot of listeners who are grandparents as well. They kind of start to fall into that category that you mentioned of being afraid and paranoid um, because this message is, it's kind of a heavy message, but your mission, and you say this in your book, I like the way you state it. You say, I want to clearly spell out the steps of grooming, like you just said, and give adults the courage to intervene. And I, th- what hit me as I read your book was this is our job as the parents and the grandparents. It's not our job to teach our children only about stranger danger because that's not enough. And in many cases, as you educated us through this book, that's not, it's not usually a stranger who is actually grooming them and who is the predator in these cases. And so can you talk a little bit about more about the role of the parents in this? Because I think we sometimes have to shift our thinking and realize that we have a really important role in this. It's not just role playing with our kids or teaching our kids. There's a lot more about our role specifically. I'm glad you asked that question, Mari. What I have noticed is that parents want to have a quick fix yeah. and they want the, um, you know, one, one hit wonder. We need to make sure what it is and we need to look for it and yeah, check the box, check the box. You know, mm-hmm. I, I made sure they had a background check, for example, but what I'm, um, trying to educate people about is that it is a perverse form of courtship. Mm. So time and time again, you have individuals who are growing in intimacy with your child. And as a parent, your job is to be the home base for your family. So when there is somebody who is growing in intimacy with your child, um, sharing adult information with your child if they're going through a hardship and they're suddenly their confidant becomes your child that is a problem 
Yeah. Children need to stay children and adults need to respect that the parent is the front line. So anytime a parent notices an adult who doesn't ask for permission or isn't allowing the parent of the child to be the authority figure, we potentially have a problem Mm -hmm. and we have an opportunity to have further questions with that individual and to have in individual conversations with our children about why the people within the home, typically your parents, who are most likely not wanting to harm you, there are obviously situations in which that is a, is a, the case. However, the majority of the time, your mother and your father want the best for you and they want to keep you healthy. So mm-hmm. our job is to be that home base and yeah. to pay attention to what programs am I putting my child in and doing the the hard work, the background work, what sort of um, safety measures are there in place for, at this um, after school sport or what sort of training have the coaches had about recognizing grooming or recognizing child sex abuse and what sort of methods of supervision are there? Are they encouraging parents to come and to stay for a practice are there um you know is is practice a black box and you can't see in and you drop your child off and there's no way of knowing what's happening inside Mm -hmm. those are the sorts of questions that i'm asking um i'm really pleading with parents because i want to link arms with other moms and dads in an effort to keep communities safe because if my community is safe then your kid who lives in that community is also safe and we have an opportunity to spread a message of active parenting not passive parenting and you know parenting gets all these labels now helicopter parent and snowplow parent but (laughs) parenting is parenting Mm -hmm. and it means asking tough questions and being unliked oftentimes by your child Mm -hmm. or possibly by other adults. And so that call to courage, Mari, that you talked about is (laughs) we need to not be afraid of other parents. Yeah. We need to stand up for our children and acknowledge that sometimes we, we do have to be that parent who says, you know, I'm not comfortable with your technology policy at your house. So let's meet out at a park instead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Listeners, if you are just joining us, you are here in the family room. We're speaking with Anna Sonoda about her new book, Duck, Duck, Groom, Understanding How a Child Becomes a Target. Anna, as you were talking, I had this image, and it's, just go with me here, but I had an image from Scripture when it talked about the shepherd and um, the shepherd and the sheepfold and how they're the gate, you know, and the visual I remember at one point somebody describing to me is that the sheepfold had walls or, you know, the fencing all the way around, but the opening to the sheepfold is where the shepherd would lay his own body down and so that no sheep could go out, but also no wolves or bad predators could go in. And I'm, I'm visualizing each of us as parents remembering our role. We are the shepherd. We are the ones, we are the gatekeepers. We're the ones to lay down ourselves at that entrance um, to make sure that, that nobody's getting in to our children. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know we're talking about this relative to pedophilia, but you know, and it's kind of funny. You I mean, you bring up a basic topic of pay attention to what's going on around you with your kids, with your family, whatever. And I think, We've, uh, if the right word is abdicated, mm-hmm. our role. And what's funny is the government's trying to take our role. There's a lot of institutions trying to take our role saying, well, parents, you don't know what's best for your kids. We do. So, I mean, this really is that wake up call again through this book saying, you know, before your kids get damaged, 
whether it's through a pedophile or whether it's through grooming for other things, pornography, you know, where there were, let's bring this into our classrooms for five-year-olds, teach them about sexuality using pornography. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to believe some of the pedophilia comes out of pornography and some different things that have uh, infiltrated our society and we've sat back and let happen. Without going down another tangent, though, specifically to your book, you introduced some definitions and some t- statistics that I think are probably beneficial for all of us to hear. Would you look at some of those and tell us what you know our common understanding around this topic would be? I'd love to. Thank you, Craig. Um, I want to start by saying that we use the term pedophile a lot in our culture. And according to the diagnostic criteria of the DSM, the male population in America is probably four to five percent fitting the criterion for pedophile. And for females, it's three to four percent. So when we look at the overall population, we don't have that many, quote unquote, pedophiles, but people rely heavily on that term. And what I'd like people to start thinking about is to stretch back a little bit, almost act like a drone and back away from getting too fixated on diagnostics and criterion and think more holistically about questionable behavior with children. Anybody who wants to make dirty jokes around kids, anyone who is um, making a child feel bigger and older than they really should be. Children need to have an environment in which they can grow and mature in a slow manner, in a slow and safe manner. So we we do sort of hook our talons into pedophiles, but that's a tiny fraction of the population. And the people who are acting out against our kids aren't necessarily fitting in right. to a diagnostic criterion, which mm-hmm. I know is alarming and is upsetting. But that's what we notice because we have too many instances of child sex abuse. Well, it's also freeing to understand that because it's like, OK, so we don't need to be just searching for the pedophiles. We need to be searching for these odd and behaviors, these right? odd behaviors. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And one of the things that is really important and is illustrated in the book is this idea that this courtship, this perverse courtship sets up a trap, if you will, for a child. So you've been probably to classes and safety programs in which mm-hmm. we're really focused on telling kids, say, stop, run away, tell the person no. I would argue that By the time a child is put in a position where physical touch might be happening, they're so far down into what I would term as a trap that they need more help than that. And that's Mm -hmm. where adults are their only rescue. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really that you kind of triggered a thought that I really liked the analogy of a courtship. Because if you think about all of us having courted, I wasn't very frequently courted myself, but um, <laughs> but having courted, it's it, it's I mean, you could, I, I don't know right terms to know, but sometimes you're going to be together. And then when is that time where you have the PDA, the public display of affection, where you get to hold hands or, you know, hug in public? I mean, you really go through some kind of steps in in your process. And, and, and there's probably terms for that. But if if you think about this whole um child abuse and grooming as a courtship, then there's some very specific stages. And I think you shared that there were like four. And I don't know that we get through all of them before our break or not, because it's kind of, it's fairly intense. But can you walk us through those four stages and kind of, well, you said behavior, like watch behavior. 
Um, even in our jobs, they tell us, don't think about if you're going to, if you're going to deal with something, deal with the behavior, right? Kind of walk us through those stages and the behaviors, if you would, please. Yes, John, I'd love to. So the first step is setting the trap and an individual can set the trap by introducing themselves to you, which is how every relationship begins Yeah, and making themselves a positive influence. You know, these individuals are very well versed at making friends, making new connections and gaining the trust of adults because the first line of defense is the family. So the grooming has to start with the family and that that is largely the guardian or the parents. So during the setting the trap stage, the individual is very gracious, they are very kind, they go out of their way, and they are polite in all settings. They might spend time looking at your child, they might spend time uh, trying to get to know you a little bit better, more than the other players. For example, if I'm dealing with a coach, and the coach is really going on and on about my child, but they don't really know us yet, we've just joined the team, and it seems like my child is getting specific attention, that needs to be something that I'm noting. In baiting the trap, which is the second stage, we're really looking at making the predator somebody who the family relies on. So in these situations, you'll see offers for free rides to and from a practice. Again, because if you go back to your point, John, about courtship, it's to have access and time with that person, right? When you were courting your spouse, you thought, oh, well, maybe I'll just, I'll go to that class just so I can be close to them. So in the same way, baiting the trap says, what can I do to be close to this child or this family? Free babysitting is a common one. I'm going to make sure that the child gets to participate in the activities where I'm a leader or I'm a volunteer or I'm going to be present because if I'm present, I can spend more time with that family being present and I won't let things get in the way. So for example, you'll see that um, individuals at this stage will give presents and gifts of some sort. And these things can be tangible. They're often financial. Um, and they can also be things that a family may not be able to afford. So if my family can't afford to send my child to a camp where this specific person wants more access to my child, they might waive the fees. Wow, fantastic. So I'm feeling like this person is even more generous and kind. It's reaffirming my trust mm -hmm. because they want to give my child something really positive. And my child feels impressed and excited to participate in something. But all the while, if I'm paying attention to behaviors, I might say, huh, isn't it interesting that that individual wants this much time with my child. Yeah. I always say any adult who wants to spend more time with my child than I do <laughs> is, is room is cause for cause for um Suspicion. <laughs> Suspicion is an alarm. Hopefully the alarm bells are going off, yeah. right? Yeah. The third stage is rigging the trap with guilt. So rigging the trap with guilt. Yeah. Okay. For the for the child, for, for the, the child, yes. for the prey. Because yeah. the, the person going into the trap is the child. Right. And the person who's orchestrated the trap is the predator. Right. Okay. So once you've rigged the trap with guilt means I'm going to put the child in a position where they are going outside of their norms. They've broken a family rule. They have been dishonest. They've been disobedient. And if something were to come up with my behavior as the predator, they would be outed for doing something wrong. Mm. So 
I have an opportunity to test the child by putting them in situations and settings where maybe we're selecting a movie and I pick an R-rated movie and the child says, oh, I'm not allowed to watch R-rated movies. That's an opportunity for me to um, figure out, okay, maybe I can use this if we go ahead and play this movie as a little thread of um, leverage over this child. That's what the predator's thinking. Right. I can use yes. this. Right. Yes. Does that, I don't as know leverage. That yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. And then the final stage is keeping the trap shut with threats. So now that I'm needed by your family, let's say your mother relies on me to get you to and from practices or for financial reasons, then if something happens in our relationship, I have an opportunity to say, this is going to hurt your mother. This is going to hurt you. This is going to hurt your opportunities to get in for uh, a scholarship the next program for, yeah. or mm-hmm. to get a letter of recommendation. So by the time we've got the child into the trap, keeping them there is important so that the abuse can continue. And I want that to be really clear, yeah. that the abuse is accelerated in these latter stages. So it's not just like, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to have an event, and then, and then that's that. It's it's like it's an event, an escalated event, and, and so the intensity of this abuse is is really – it's set up so the intensity of the abuse can, can grow. It does – it's not – I have a crazy question, so forgive me for throwing this one out. I know we only got a couple minutes left, but are there any statistics that say in those families that are targeted, if there's a strong father there – that those abuses don't happen or those families may not be targeted the same way? I think that's a really interesting question. I don't have statistics on specific family makeup. What we do know is that children who live in a home with two married parents have the least likelihood of being sexually abused. Mm -hmm. Children who grow up living in a house with an unmarried mom who's dating have the highest. They have a 20 times more likelihood of getting sexually abused that's even compared to foster children who yeah. we, we've all heard stories about the foster care system. And in the foster care system, children are 10 times more likely to be molested. So it's a conversation we all need to be wow. having with so single women. It feels like, though, Craig, just and this, so this is John's population of the world, right? Yeah. So it's more about the situation that you're in and less about your the, the parent, because every, every scenario of which I'm aware, there was a very strong faith-filled father where they were abused. That's why I'm saying, sorry for the confusion, but I don't, I think it's more about the the situations in which people find themselves or kids find themselves or where they're allowed to be versus, Hey, there's, there's a, there's a faith influence either there or missing. In the book, I talk a lot about parents drinking the Kool-Aid of the adult and thinking of this person as a unicorn. And that is very likely in several of the settings that I talk about in detail, Mm -hmm. in religious settings, in sports settings, in um, after-school settings, and even in relationships with clergy and uh, physicians, because we put these people on a pedestal, and that's the problem Uh, as adults. So listeners, if you're here with us in the family room, you've been listening to Anna Sonoda. She's written this amazing book called Duck, Duck, Groom, Understanding How a Child Becomes a Target. So we are going to hear more from Anna after this break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back inside the family room in moments. Sponsored by Versprite on The Quest. In today's world, cybersecurity is critical for your business. Award-winning Versprite provides solutions to protect your company from hackers. For protection now, see Versprite.com. That's V-E-R-Sprite.com. The Quest thanks Versprite for their support. The Quest presents Pro-Life Minutes. 
Healthcare providers should care about health, right? Why then has Planned Parenthood's actual women's healthcare services dropped over 72% in the last 10 years? Abortion is not healthcare. Abortion kills. Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion provider in the United States with 700 abortion facilities. And in the 2019 fiscal year, they ended 345,672 innocent American lives. This is an increase of 13,000 in the last year and 25,000 over the last two years. To put that in context, that is about half the population of Washington, D.C. Why then does the United States government continue to send the millions of taxpayer dollars in funding and grants year after year? If we don't stop them, no one will. Let's love God by loving life. Show the world that every life matters by speaking up for life at every opportunity. For more homegrown wisdom, visit thequestatlanta.com. Here at The Quest, we often hear how our programs touch hearts and change lives. Now more than ever, people need to hear the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith. As a 100% listener-supported station, The Quest relies on monthly donations to stay on the air. Please consider making a monthly donation to The Quest and help us continue to provide inspiring Catholic programming. Monthly donors are the lifeblood of the station. Visit thequestatlanta.com to donate. Thank you for your support. Hi, this is AJ with The Quest. Did you know that we are on a mission to invite, inform, and inspire listeners like you? We want you to embrace your journey and take one step closer to God by not only listening, but engaging with us. In fact, we could use your help with making this vision a reality. I ask you to prayerfully consider joining us as a missionary to help with volunteer tasks at our studio in Roswell, Georgia. If you feel called to help and would like to learn more, please send us an email at info at thequestatlanta.com. Does your parish, charitable organization, or ministry have an upcoming event that you'd like to promote? Advertise it on AM 1160, the Quest Community Calendar. It's easy and there's never a fee. Just visit thequestatlanta.com, click on events, and submit your activity or event. Enhance the success of your community outreach event. Take advantage of the Quest Atlanta's complimentary community calendar and gain more exposure to the Metro Faith community. Submit your event at thequestatlanta.com today. St. Joseph was a man of few words. In fact, not a single word of his was recorded in Scripture. But the Father of Jesus spoke abundantly in his silence, and he certainly gave us a lot to talk about. Want to go deeper? Listen to the St. Joseph series on your Quest app and on thequestatlanta.com. Welcome back to The Family Room with Mari, John, and Craig, sponsored by Versprite on AM 1160 The Quest. Talking with Anna Sonoda about her book, Duck, Duck, Groom, Understanding How a Child Becomes a Target. Very um, important topic, very heavy topic, but let's just pivot a little bit and have something a little bit lighter and talk about your favorite family room memory, whether with your family of seven of you, five kids and you and your husband, or even growing up, something that happened in your family that was just a favorite memory you like to remember and think about. That's a great question, Craig. As we prepare... Do me a favor. Listeners, that's the second or third time she said it's a great question. I want to make sure I get some credit for asking decent <laughs> questions. Nice. Hang on. Hang on. One, two, three. That's three. Make, make that no. We got it. <laughs> Sorry. My favorite childhood memory, I come from um, a British background. I was born in Scotland and was raised there until we moved to the United States. And we always have a British Christmas. Yeah. So with a British Christmas, you have the equivalent of 
your Thanksgiving meal and you have something called crackers, which you'll find more and more here in this country. We used to have to go to the British shop, which is all the way in Norcross and, you know, buy buy several boxes up. Um, But it's a tradition where you pull with your neighbor at the table and inside there's a there's a joke sheet and there's a little paper hat and a little gift or a toy. And it's been beautiful to think back on those memories and also to share that with our children as they're growing cool. and preparing oh, nice. for Christmas. Cool. And do you have figgy pudding? No. No? Oh, no. Oh, she's bad, bad let's, luck. Let's not push it, Mari. <laughs> it's British. It's not nuts. <laughs> That's great. So, Anna, before the break, you were walking us through the stages that the groomer goes through in order to set the trap for our child and get our child get access to our children and you said the stages were setting the trap then baiting the trap with things like gifts and favors rigging the trap with guilt and then keeping the trap shut and what came to my mind as i was listening that to that and i was trying to visualize seeing the trap happen in front of me is the first two stages the setting the trap especially with compliments for your child and for your family and then baiting that trap with gifts and favors a lot of that seems like it's pretty obvious it could potentially be pretty obvious and it's and it's right there out in the open and then by the time you get to rigging the trap with guilt because they're trying to make the child feel guilty it may almost feel like it's going underground a little bit um, and so it's so important for us to be aware right from the beginning as parents. So I was curious your thoughts about, am I seeing that right? Am I thinking about that right? Or as a parent, what do I need to think about as I'm just being aware of all of those stages potentially happening right in front of my eyes? Excellent point, Mari. I think what... I got an excellent, Craig. I got an excellent. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm just turn my mic off. Dave. I, I, I'm just going to keep score over here. Okay. Oh, John. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think one of the important things that you bring up is when we're attuned and we're paying attention and we're awake as parents, that we get to pay attention not just to what behaviors people are doing on the outside, but we get to pay attention to the behaviors of our child. Ah. So at the stages of the three and four level with ringing the trap and then keeping the trap shut, we're really tuning into what am I noticing about my child? Are they secretive? Are they defensive? Are they resistant? Are they demanding time and attention with this person? Do they want to quit certain activities where this person is involved? Mm. Has there been a sudden change of behavior? Are we suddenly seeing hypersexuality and inappropriate playing with siblings? There are signs that our children will show us that are listed in the book and that I'm happy to educate people on because that's the piece that doesn't go underground. Because when we're really in our homes and we're engaging with our kids and we put our phones down and we really have conversations, our children will tell us. They may not tell us in a straight line or with clear details, but they will show us with their behavior as well. And in the book, I talk about the two ingredients for successful child molestation, and those those are access and space. Mm. So what I think is important for us to note is that even with the trap as it is, you cannot get to 
abuse unless you have access to the family and the child and spaces in which to abuse a child. Mm. Most abuse is not going to happen in front of us. It's going to happen behind closed doors. In fact, 82% of all child abuse happens in the home of the victim or the home of the perpetrator. Mm. So that's something for your audience to note. Where do I let my children spend time? What homes are they going into? And who's coming into my home? And how do I protect my children in my home? If I'm dating? What sort of relationships am I putting my children in front of? What are they witnessing? What do they possibly get exposed to inside the home? If we have neighbors and acquaintances who are coming over, are there limits to where that person can go? Are bedrooms free and open? Are bathrooms free and open? Do we have locks on doors, for example? So I want to really help people understand that we can be paranoid, but that doesn't actually serve us. What serves us is paying attention to who's got access to my family and my child and what space is there lacking supervision. Because all of us know when we're watching our children, we're paying attention. Yeah. But where are those spaces where we're not welcome? And who might be in our child's life who says, no, we don't need you to be there. No, I've got it. Now, this might be a assist in a way to the family. Oh, great. I can just, you know, I don't have to go to that game tonight or I don't have to go to that um, practice. But what I would suggest is that so much of detecting grooming is about showing up yeah. and it's about looking around and paying attention and listening to other people and talking to other people. What do we know from conversations that people are having in their own communities about, oh, well, this is a little strange, or I really like the way this person is treating our, our kids. You have to be there to observe properly. Yeah, yeah. And if you make it too difficult for them to have access, will they give up and go find somebody else who it's easier to get access to? That's a that's a great question. <laughs> Now we've gotten her worried to say it. <laughs> I'm often asked this question during yeah. Virtus, yeah. which is, if my child's been picked, do they move away and select somebody else, or do, do they just keep ramming their head against a closed door? Yeah. And I would argue that they have many starting places. And if one child inadvertently you know i i don't think children are often conscious by, by starting places you mean starting children like they've they've targeted several children correct. okay correct and when you think about the even the image of the book and the title of the book you know the game duck duck goose is a selection process you mm. have a myriad of kids all in a circle and yeah. you've got to be the one to pick who's going to be the goose. And I want that image to stay in readers' minds and in your audience's mind in that they have their pick of kids. So who's giving them access? And if you're able to, think very diligently about how you can make sure that the people you're giving access still don't necessarily have space or there are other routes of supervision. Yeah. yeah. But it just reminds me of um, your own home, right? You hear people are less likely to be broken into, you lock your doors. If you have a dog, if you have a sign-up that says, I have a security system, whatever. And really what you're talking about is doing that, putting a security system in place for your kids where I see the parent at all these games or all these activities. Okay, that makes it a little bit tougher for me. Mm. They don't let my kid be around whatever, um, you know. 
coming into my house and just saying, oh, yeah, sure, go hang out in the basement by yourself with my kid. No. Okay, you've made it too difficult. I'm going to move on. And a parent that's pretty vocal that says, you know what, I'm paying attention and I'm going to say something to you. So I appreciate that because it does put that image of protecting your home. Staying specific to your book, though, um, Anna, you have a, in the second half of your book, you talk about the various communities where child safety is paramount. Can you talk about those communities, but can you also, uh, in a way, give us permission on getting into those communities and how we can be the most effective and responsible in those communities? So if I understand your question correctly, you're you're hoping to illustrate how we can still be a part of those communities and be the safe adults. Do I understand Correct. your question correctly? Correct. So in the book, I talk about the access roles that people have. So those would be caregivers, um, sports coaches, physicians, professionals, religious settings, and intimate relationships with the parents, and online. And peers, because 40% of all child sex abuse crimes are committed by peers mm. currently. So that's an area oh, wow. that we okay. we don't talk about enough, and we, we should. And the presence of technology has aided that effort to abuse kids online by other kids. Um, but one thing I would note about all of those access roles is that you are invited into those spaces. So for example, let's take a, a physician's visit. In order to prepare for a physician's visit, you could research ahead of time. What's to be expected during this visit? How will the procedures go? What procedures are necessary? Am I comfortable with the procedures? And if at any time you are uncomfortable, you have the authority to pause the meeting to leave the appointment, to request a staff member, to request information, like why is this procedure being done to my minor child? You have a lot more authority and power than you might always utilize, even though that person has a white coat on, they have a medical degree. Do you see how mm -hmm. in this courtship process, this idea of I'm raising somebody else up over myself, I'm elevating their stance, and I'm questioning my own judgment. Yeah. And I would actually argue that parents need to be reminded that your judgment is usually correct. Yeah, And we have to have a, a belief in our own perception of the individuals who are coming into our, our lives and the lives of our families. Folks, if you're just joining us, you're in the family room and we're speaking with Anna Sonoda and we're speaking about a great book she's written, Duck, Duck, Groom, Understanding How a Child Becomes a Target. You've hit on a lot of things, uh, and we actually had some questions show up in, in an outline from uh, Graham. Are you mind taking a second, and maybe we could kind of ping a couple of these questions, and you could answer them? For example, as a grandmother, when playing with my small grandchild, what are some of the comments that may alert me to grooming? Interesting. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at the relationship between grandparents and children, mm -hmm. you will be paying attention to things like, is it age appropriate play? Are there any sexual undercurrents that are happening in the play with the child? You know, children are wonderful to watch because they're very expressive. And once they're vocal, they have lots of imagination and typically when something is happening to the child it will show up in the way that they play so as a grandparent if you're you're with your grandchildren and you're thinking oh I, I, these are this is something if they start if they something in the play becomes kind of sexually unusual 
then, huh, there might be something else going on. Where did that come from? Absolutely. Okay. Or sexually advanced. Yeah. That's interesting. Why would they be playing um, these sorts of games rather than, and then I went to the store, and then we woke up, and then we did this. Yeah. Um, So we'd be paying attention to things like that. We'd also be paying attention to areas where a child is very fearful or Mm -hmm. very sad. Again, I I spoke a few moments ago about... paying attention to the behavior of our children. As a grandparent, it really depends on how much access you have to that child. Are you watching them over weeks and weeks at a time, or do you just pop into town for one week and then you pop away? It's going to be very difficult to see the progression of behavior if you are only intermittently involved in that child's life, if that makes sense. That makes sense, because you don't see the pattern. You don't, yeah, you're looking for kind of a pattern and a pattern shifting or changing. Absolutely, and we're looking for sudden change. Okay. And I would say in that in the, to that um, grandmother who's listening that the important thing is to have an open dialogue with the child's parents. Mm-hmm. And if there isn't an established dialogue or expectation that when things come up, we're going to have conversations. We're going to have easy conversations and we're going to have tough conversations because that's what families do. And courageous parents protect their kids. And courageous grandparents bring up topics that are otherwise um taboo or uncomfortable yeah i think you just answered the other question it's like you just craig you said it you you challenged us as men on a thousand different topics stand up and face the music right Mm -hmm. the battle Mm -hmm. rages engage yeah Yeah. i mean you keep saying courageous and you keep saying you know be aware you know this is really should be very basic for us and unfortunately i think now is just the time god's trying to remind all of us you know look at Satan's after our families, after our kids. Here's what he uses to get to them. Destroy their spirit, destroy our family, whatever. And it's like, you know, be willing to be crucified. Stand up, speak up, say something. Mm -hmm. Not in in a, um, you know, terrible, ugly way, but as much as I got to protect the people in my life that are vulnerable, right? Right. Yeah. And that actually goes to a question that I got from one of our listeners. We we put this we told them you were going to be on the show and we started getting some questions and one of one of our listeners said, "I I want to know how do I speak up to a whole community?" And so she gave me this story and it happened this happened to her son several years ago where there was a leader in the community who she noticed was inviting middle school boys to do different events. And she didn't know this person very well and everybody else told her, Oh, this is a great person. And so she let her son go. This, this gentleman was taking a group of boys to the movies. And so she said, okay. So she let her son go along to the movies. And when they, when he got dropped back off, she said, how was the movie? And her son said, Oh, we didn't go to the movies. And she said, what do you mean you didn't go to the movies? What'd you do? And he said, Oh, well, we went, so we went such and such a place. They went someplace different. And she said to her son, Okay, you are not going with that person anymore, and here is why. That person is did not tell your mom or your dad that the plans had changed, and adults cannot do that. Adults don't do that. Adults have to talk to other adults, and they have to get permission from other adults to take you anywhere or to do anything, so I'm sorry, you're not going to go. And she said, I became the mean mom, and 
then because she also was an alert, aware parent, she was watching her middle school son's phone. And she noticed that this person continued to text her son and invite him to do a number of different activities, all kinds of fun activities. I want to take you here, there, there. And so the father, once again, having a a married couple, the mother noticed this. She'd had the conversation with the son, told the father. The father saw this gentleman out in the community and, and said, if you contact my son again, I will call the police. And this person, instead of saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't, you, they just went, okay, and they walked away. And I just saw that, like... There's a red it, flag. I duck, know, as I was listening... Passing yeah. on that one, right? Yeah, pass yeah. that goose, right? But she mm. said, what I did in that... And this was a number of years ago. She said, what I did in that circumstances is I told all the moms I knew so that they you know, that they would be aware of kind of the red flags I was seeing. Not everybody believed believed me, but she said, I've been continuing to watch this person because he's still in our community. What do I do now? What do I do now? Yeah. Well, That's a fantastic story. And it highlights that awake parents yes. who are paying close attention, not just to the behavior of adults around them, but are paying attention to their children's behavior. Look, she had an open conversation with her child. Yes. And her child was honest. Yeah. And that takes an established relationship of trust between a child and their parent. And all of us can improve our relationships with our children, even today, Mm -hmm. and making that space where you alert your child at any time, if anything's happening, you can come to me. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter how it happens. You will not be in trouble. Sometimes the way that we respond as parents can turn our children off to being honest and to coming to us. That was a pact that we made. We, a bunch of us lived in in another city. All of our family was somewhere else. So we kind of became each other's family for holidays and stuff like that. And as the kids got to middle school and high school, they all took an oath with us that if you're uncomfortable, Chris, if you don't want to call mom and me, then you call Mr. and Mrs. such and such, or you call Mr. And, and, and the deal we had as parents, no questions asked. You go get the kid and in an uneventful way, get him back home and then we'll talk, right? Mm -hmm. So you give them a safe place to go when mom and dad, when they've done something and it kind of, I felt like it feels like it negated that whole guilt part of the trap, right? Because like I can get out, I can at least get out of the trap for 10 minutes and and if it, and that 10 minutes might be enough to to make a difference. So in this, her question in this situation was, okay, this is this many years later, I'm still noticing that this person is ingratiating themselves and really working in the lives of other people in my community. I don't want to slander somebody if I don't know for sure that's the situation. Do I, what do I do? I, I don't know. That's what she was saying. I think what it highlights is that all of us are living in a community with somebody who potentially yeah. has nefarious right desires with children and what we have to remember is that our vigilance her vigilance in that moment and that continued expectation of honest communication and follow through not letting that person get deeper and deeper into relationship with her son but to remind everybody and to put everybody on notice is really useful. Unfortunately, we can't get rid of everybody who possibly wants to abuse children. But what we can do is we can stand up as parents, we can pay attention, and we can have really open discussions and dialogues within our communities and our families, including our children. We spend, I spend the last um, part of the book talking about a parent's guide, Mm -hmm. what you can do, teaching Mm -hmm. your children, 
real names for their body parts, having open discussions, also having role plays with your child. Let's discuss what you would do if some if a coach took you and they said you were going to be going to the movies and then suddenly you end up at a theme park. Mm-hmm. What, how would you handle that situation? Well, mom, I don't know how I'd handle that situation. Well, let's talk through your options. You know, we dry run everything that we do. When we are going to be driving a car, we take driving lessons. We practice parking and parking lots. We don't suddenly get thrust into these events. And oftentimes, I think we don't arm our kids properly. Mm-hmm. So the chapter on parenting and protecting parenting means preparing our kids, yeah. preparing ourselves and our minds so that if an event comes up or if a trend of grooming comes up, we have an opportunity to notice it and to handle it effectively. But also as a community, we can link arms with other mm-hmm. like-minded parents and families and say, not on our watch, not here. And even if there are some people who are still in, in the community, you're never going to be able to protect from everyone. So we have to do our due diligence and pay attention to who's getting access and what spaces are available where parents and supervision is non-existent yeah that's a great point i think it's important too because we talked about you know when there is a husband and wife scenario the opportunity drops somebody listening might say well you know now you're making me feel guilty because i'm that single mom and i'm dating now i mean what we're saying to your point uh, anna is community Surround yourself with people that are like-minded that want to protect your kid as much as you do and understand you got to make those sacrifices, right? And I mean, be an educated community and yeah. close ranks yeah. against the predators. Yeah, yeah no, 100%. And oftentimes, to to your point, it means you sacrifice something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You sacrifice having a relationship for mm-hmm. a time. You sacrifice getting a, a weekend off because your child is with somebody else. You sacrifice opportunities for them possibly to go to camps or things like that. But overall, what we do gain is we gain the peace of mind that we are leading our our sheep and yeah. we're paying yeah. attention closely to thir- certain threats that might be on the horizon. Yeah. Shame, shame on you. <laughs> calling us to be courageous, calling us to do our job. I don't know. I'm be offended. sacrificial I'm a in our Sacrifice for our kids? What are you, crazy? <laughs> Such crazy talk on this show. But it's funny, though, you're having this conversation and we're old enough to have grown up at a time where I think my parents lived that, right? Mm-hmm. My parents knew everybody we hang out with. Frankly, my mother went up to school about a teacher that she thought, okay, this is odd. He's a male teacher inviting these kids to go do different things. And I know he, I mean, he, I won't tell you what happened, but it was not a pretty sight. My mother didn't give a, you know what? She was like, no, you're not coming near my kids, my son or whatever. So she, she knew it. Yeah, she knew it. So Anna, in your book, you just mentioned it at the end. You've got a whole lot of uh, safety plans for families, questions for caregivers. So we're going to put links in our show notes to where people can order your book and maybe also a, a few of these uh, checklists, um, a few of these uh, pieces that would be really helpful for tools for parents as well. So remember, listeners, you can go to thequestatlanta.com forward slash the family room and you'll see a a button where you can click for podcast and show notes and so you'll have show notes to all of these um so anna any final words of encouragement before we ask you to close in prayer for our listeners i think i would just say 
God's given us this opportunity to have this discussion today as a really important wake-up call. Mm. And it's an important wake-up call for me and all of your listeners because we can do something. The majority of people do not want to harm our children. So the people who do actually stand out. So if we know that, we don't have to be paranoid about everybody. We can just be attuned, not only to other people, but most importantly to our children who um, need us at every turn. Great. Thank you. Would you pray for us as we close out today? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, the gift of this conversation and the gift of this audience. May you please arm them with the courage that they need to protect their families their communities, and your kingdom here on earth. Amen. 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 Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Anna, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And listeners, we thank you so much for joining us here in the Family Room, where we offer hope, encouragement, truth, and wisdom for families. Thanks for hanging out with us in the Family Room, sponsored by Versprite. For more info, go to thequestatlanta.com.